Great to see everybody. I'll begin with prayer as we come to our seats. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look at your text of Scripture, that you'd help us to think well and help us to have wisdom as to how to honor you in our giving and also to receive discipline from you when you providentially bring it. I also pray for Bob as he gives us this important sermon out of 1 Corinthians 3 that we would help understand, that you would help us understand, Lord, the text and what it says that we may apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll get started. We're in Proverbs 3, 9 through 12. Now, next week, we'll try to finish Proverbs 3. We're going to be looking at a hymn. But today we have two topics, and hopefully we'll get to both of them. The two topics are put together by the writer of Proverbs, probably Solomon here, that have to do, first of all, with how we honor God in the giving of our money. And the second is about discipline. Are we willing to receive discipline from the Lord when he providentially brings that about in our lives? So we're going to see some, I think, interesting things about the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant between how giving was to be done under the Old Covenant and how giving is to be accomplished under the New Covenant. But let's get started straight away. Let's look at what Solomon writes here, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. He says this, he says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So, so here's the purpose, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now here... We have Solomon calling us to honor God from our wealth and our produce. And, of course, this originally applied to those who lived under the Mosaic Covenant. But what you'll find is that the principle of honoring God in your giving is found in both the Old and the New Covenant. And I want you to think about how Paul said, for example, in Acts 17, Bob had taught us this, in verse 28, remember Paul was at Athens, and he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Now, why do I mention that passage in relationship to giving? Well, the fundamental biblical worldview is that God owns it all and that he gives all things that we do have to us. Now, I I don't mean to say that he gives everything he, he has to us, but all things that we have are given to us. God owns it all. That's the idea. In fact, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what did you have that you did not receive? And, of course, the answer is, well, nothing. And therefore, God owns it all. That's the principle that you see both in the Old and the New Covenant. But we will find is that whereas in the Old Covenant, people were commanded to give in certain ways, in the New Covenant, because we have the Holy Spirit, we are free to give in ways that come to our minds. We are free to give in ways that glorify God, that are not necessarily commanded under the Mosaic Covenant. So we'll look at examples like that. But I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers 18.6. Numbers 18.6. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. And what I'm going to show you is that oftentimes God would give gifts that we don't think of. And so even people that do ministry, like the Levites in the Old Covenant, were considered gifts. Now, while you're turning to Numbers 18.6, I'm going to put up on the screen here a little bullet point. And we'll come back to the verse that you're looking up here, Numbers 18.6. Notice here, to honor God means to treat him as being weighty. The term in Hebrew for honor, kavad, 
means to treat someone as being weighty or that they have... Does anyone know the term? I'm sure you've all heard it, gravitas, that they have some importance. And the example I like to think of is think about General Patton in World War II when he'd go visit his troops in the Third Army. They would snap to attention because there was a weightiness to him, the general. Or think about your grandfather. You would seat him at the head of the table because you wanted to honor him and show how he was cherished and loved in your family and how important he was as the head of the family. That's the type of ideas, I think, behind honoring God, showing a love, a reverence, but also a genuine fear of who he is and honoring him, considering him as being weighty. Well, one of the ways we are to do that is in our giving. What's interesting is notice in Numbers 18.6, here you have God give something back that he took. Now, do you remember that all of the other pagan deities, when they would take something of the firstborn, they would take even human beings. In fact, remember the false god Molech? He would require the death of the firstborn child if you wanted to have favor with them. So think about it. You're some pagan. You're living in the ancient Near East. And if you wanted to have a bumper crop for your field, you would perhaps even sacrifice your firstborn to this false god Molech. Well, God doesn't do that. But because he deserves all of the firstborn, he takes a substitute. So he takes the Levites to be his firstborn. But notice here in Numbers 18.6, he says, Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you. The term gift, let's just stop there, is matanah. Matanah, that's a gift. It's a gift from Yahweh dedicated to Yahweh to perform the service for the tent of meeting. So it's interesting. From our perspective, we think, well, these are the men who volunteered for it. These are the men who are set aside. It's them giving to God. But I want you to see that God sees it as his gift to Israel. Now, why am I setting this passage in particular? Because this, I believe, may be alluded to in Ephesians 4. Do you remember in Ephesians 4, it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And remember what those gifts were? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as etc., etc. He goes through the list. And so it's interesting is the apostles and prophets that give us our scriptures are considered God's gift to us. Now, the reason I'm mentioning these gifts are these are gifts that we typically don't think of people. I think about every one of you as a gift to the church. And that's how we ought to think about it. God has given us all things. Even the people that we have in our lives are gifts from him. Very interesting. So he really does give us all things. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles. In fact, you know what? I'm not going to have you turn there because it may take too long. Uh, Well, let's just do it for fun. Let's turn to Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. I want everyone to see this connection, this giving of gifts that Christ does. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. Bob taught us this when we were in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. I just want you to see the relationship of God even giving us human beings, namely the apostles and prophets, as a gift. So I hope you've turned to Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. Notice here in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He says, Therefore, he says, Psalm 68, 18, 
When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then in verse 9, he says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, what's the purpose there of talking about that he descended and that he ascended? The same Christ that descended to the point of even death and being buried, he condescended himself to that level, has now ascended into the heavens. But when he ascended, he gave us the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us what? All of these gifts. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 11, what are these gifts? It says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Then he says in verse 12, for the equipping, here's the purpose, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I want you to see that in the Old Testament, he gave the Levites for the ministering of the people. Now he gives us apostles and prophets, and namely the scriptures, the people who give us the scriptures. Okay, so even people are seen as gifts. That's the point that I want you to see. So God really does own all things. So everything that we have that's a gift is a gift given from God. And therefore, that's why we should give back to give him honor and glory. Now, there were certain commands under the old covenant. Oh, yeah, Bob. I, I need to get all three of the mics dialed in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Plus, I have a question about that. Because mm-hmm. I, I have part of that I'm going to cover in my sermon. Yes. I get emails from people asking, well, if he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers, why do we still have a pa- or pastors, teachers, evangelists, but no apostles and prophets. Yeah. And so there are a lot of volunteers for that position. Right, right, right. And, um, <laughs> now, that is a very common email I get. Yeah. And now, for critical issues, the most uh, often are people wondering how they got deceived in a movement where right. people claim to speak for God who did not. Yeah. And so I see this mic is working. Maybe somebody can use the remote one if they're all working. Yeah. That'd be good. That would help. Yeah, no, that's very good. Yeah, very good question. So, you know, I know you're probably thinking along the same lines. The apostles and prophets were meant as a gift given for just a period, for a time. And they're the ones who give us the scriptures. And remember, I've talked about how there were four criteria for an apostle that no one can meet today. Number one, they were called. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that the calling of the apostles was personal and objective. It wasn't some subjective unction that they had, or at breakfast they thought, you know, I think I'm going to be an apostle today. No, Jesus Christ personally, bodily intervened in their lives, and he called them. So that's number one. Number two, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. All right, number three... They were personally instructed by Christ for three years. Who else could claim that today? Who could say that they saw the bodily resurrected Christ today? Paul did on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But no one else can. In fact, remember, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul said he was the last of all as one who was untimely born to see the resurrected Christ. That term last of all means the last in the series. So we shouldn't expect others to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth criteria is that they did miracles. And I don't mean that God can't do miracles today. What I'm saying is that when they healed, they they healed them all. 
How many times today have you, saw, have you seen whole hospital wings filled with people who were crippled, healed, because a man went in there and their shadow came across them like the apostles did? The, path, the apostles batted a thousand. They healed these men. I, I showed you last week that the lame would leap like a deer to show that they did the same miracles that Christ did. Why? Because God was authenticating, according to Hebrews 2, that they were his spokesmen. So this was for a time, and we don't have them today. Yeah, Peter. Real quick, uh, can you expound a little bit on untimely born, what he meant by that? Paul. Yeah, so Paul is using just the idea that the rest of the apostles, they were with Christ during his three-year earthly ministry, but obviously Paul comes years later. And so he's using that phrase simply to say he acknowledges that he was not with Christ from the beginning as the original apostles were, yet in God's grace he was brought to the same standard. It was a bodily intervention and personal calling by Christ. He saw the resurrected Christ personally in his, in his resurrection. Um, he was also personally taught by Christ. Remember we saw that in Galatians and Arabia. Ironically, for three years, the same length of time as the original apostles. And number four, um, according to Acts chapter 14, he did the same miracles that the other apostles did. And so he was brought up to the same standard. So untimely born simply means it was after the other apostles. Yeah, so very... Does that help, Peter? No, it's not a derogatory statement in any way. He's just simply acknowledging that, yeah, he came later. So, yeah, very good question. So here's the point. The apostles and the prophets underneath them. By the way, who would be an example of a prophet? Well, we know Agabus is. Agabus is mentioned in the book of Acts. He was a prophet. But I think of men like Luke. Was Luke an apostle? No, but he was under apostolic authority. And does he give us the very scriptures? Yes. Now, why do I mention the prophets? Because in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church was built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So if the whole church has a foundation comprised of the apostles and prophets, well, you wouldn't expect multiple foundations in a building. You only have one. And the implication is the rest of the church has been built upon that. So just as you don't have multiple foundations in a building... You don't have multiple foundations of apostles and prophets that the church is built upon. It's not like every generation we have a new series or a new foundation being laid. Then again, that's why we have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints as we see in Jude 3. So again, the apostles and prophets, they were a gift certainly given by Christ at his ascension, but it was for a period of time. And then after that, we have the others who disseminate and explain what the scriptures mean. But again, the scriptures are the primary gift that God gives us because according to 2 Timothy 3, they can equip the saint for how many good works? Every. Term pas, yes, every good work. So that's the great gift that he's given. Now, what I want to start to do now is I want to distinguish between honoring God in the old covenant and honoring God in the new covenant because I want you to realize as we're reading here Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, we're going to start looking at promises. Notice on the screen, I'll pull up my pointer. Notice we'll come to this. In verse 10 it says, So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Is that a promise that we have under the new covenant? Or is that something that related to Israel under the old covenant? That's what we're going to wrestle with. But I want you to see some differences between the old and the new covenant. First of all, there were certain commands under the old covenant that they had in order to please God in their giving. One was the tithe. 
Do you know that now today under the new covenant, we are not commanded to give a 10% tithe? The term tithe, maser, is found, I'll give you the passage here, Leviticus 27.30. And that's where you would give 10% of everything that you had, whether it was an agricultural good, whether it was some animal, whatever it was, you gave 10%. The other type of giving that was required under the old covenant that's not now required is that of the first fruits. Do you remember that if they were to count, this is according to, I believe, Exodus 23. You also see it in Leviticus. But remember, there was to be seven uh, sevens, that is the appointed Sabbaths. And on the, the day after that, so you'd have 49 days, seven sevens. The day after that, you would have what they called the Feast of first fruits, right? That would be Pentecost. And so I wish I had a, this is one time I wish I had a, an easel board. I could draw this up. I want you to think of the first fruits as you had it on the 16th day of Nisan. So Christ is crucified on the 14th. He's in the ground on the 14th, but the full day of the 15th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then he's raised on the Feast of First Fruits, the 16th day of Nisan. And there they would give a wave offering of the barley. Well, then from there, they would count 50 days. You would come to Pentecost. Then they would do another wave offering, this time two loaves of wheat. Okay, so why are they doing these wave offerings, these first fruits? The imagery is when they gave the wave offering, they were saying, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust that one day you'll bring the rest. That was the imagery. So when Jesus Christ is raised on the feast of first fruits, the image is he's the first portion of the harvest. One day the rest of us will follow. So the Israelites were required to take whatever they had and to do a wave offering before the Lord. Are you and I required to do that? Have you ever seen any New Covenant Christians doing a wave offering before the Lord in their front yard? No. Nor are we required to do that. So we're going to talk about why aren't we required to do that? Why is our giving somehow different now? And again, you'll see that it's related to the fact that we were given a great gift, the greatest gift of all, namely the Holy Spirit. All right, now, there's a principle that I think is true in both covenants, and that is that God deserves the best of what we have. That he deserves, deserves the best of all that we have. In fact, I want some people to turn to some biblical passages, if you could read them for me. Could someone read Colossians 3.17? Colossians 3.17. Would somebody mind reading that one? And then I've got another one. 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Colossians 3.17. Yes. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever we do, we do it in the name of the Lord. The implication is that we give him the best in all that we do. And that's related to giving. Why? Because everything was given to us by God, our jobs, our vehicles, our children, that's the biblical worldview, that it's all things. Again, Acts 17, 28, in him we live, we move, and we have our being. If you have a breath, it's a gift from God. If your heart beats the next moment, it's a gift from God. If you have gas in your car, it's a gift from God. If a bird flies over and gives you shade for one-eighth of a second, it's a gift from God. Right? That's the view, the biblical worldview. It's all given to us from him. So when we look at our homes, it's not something that we did. It's something that God graciously provided first and foremost. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we're not to work hard. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> then it's still a gift. It's a, it's a different kind of gift, I admit, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Richie. Yeah, that's still a gift. So, very good. Does somebody have 1 Corinthians 10.31? Oh, yeah, thank you. Oops, um, it should look red, the little marker. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. So whatever, you're, if, whatever you do, if you eat or drink, you do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because he gave it all. So he used to, now again, what does glory have to do? It has to do with the same idea of honor, that he's be, be treated as weighty in all that we do. So he's the one that we're giving to. Now, let's look at the Old Covenant. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 26.2. I have this one in my notes. I'll read this to you. Deuteronomy 26.2 and Deuteronomy 26-28 are very important regarding the giving the Israelites were to do. Because as you're going to see, the Israelites were the ones who were given the promise. If you give and you honor God, God was going to promise protection upon their crops and that he would ensure that their barns were full. Now, we're going to wrestle with, do we have that same promise today as Americans, being that America does not have a similar covenant with God? So we'll wrestle with that. But I want you to notice Deuteronomy 26.2. Notice it says that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. So these are instructions that when they enter into the promised land, they're to give God the first fruits of everything they have. Whether it's an animal, whether it's a crop, he deserves the best. Very similar to what you two just read from the New Covenant, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. He gets it all. Same principle, but here you have a specific command. God gets the first of everything. And that's the idea of first fruits under the Old Covenant. Now, before we come back to this idea of how the New and the Old Covenant are different, I want to talk about ways that we can dishonor God in giving. The first way we can do that is giving in a rote way absent of faith. Now, what do I mean by giving in rote or by rote? Rote means a mechanical, habitual type of uh, system devoid of real thought or care. That's the idea. So, you know, you can just go through the motions where you're not really thinking about that. I remember um, times being really tired. Do you ever drive when you're really tired? Probably you shouldn't be driving, but you all of a sudden get somewhere and you can't remember that you were driving. You're just doing it road, right? I mean, you're just going through, the, and you'd get there, but you can't even remember your drive. That's kind of how the Israelites at times were approaching God, that they had forgotten the greatness of who he was, and they were engaged in idolatry. In fact, turn your Bibles. I want you to see Isaiah 29, 13. God indicts them for giving in a rote way, a mechanical way. They were doing it habitually, but they didn't have faith. They didn't trust him. In fact, they were trusting in other gods, as we'll see. Isaiah 29, 13. You'll see this indictment that they gave in a rote way, absent of faith. And that's why their giving was no longer acceptable. Now, as you're turning again to Isaiah 29, 13, why is that important? Because what it shows us is that God fundamentally wants faith. And that if you give to get, 
If you give to appease God or you give in a rote way, he's not pleased with it. He's not, you can take a person who gives a billion dollars absent of faith that's not pleasing, and you can take a person who gives a nickel in faith and it's pleasing to God. The implication is without faith it's impossible to please God. Okay, so notice here in Isaiah 29, 13. It says, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They did it in a habitual way, but not in a way that meant anything. Not in a way where they were trusting in Yahweh. Now, we see that in the 8th century. That's what Isaiah was rebuking. Remember, in the 8th century, what's the big battle brewing for Judah? Well, you have Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and you have Samaria. They teamed up against Judah, and they're going to sack it. They're going to destroy Ahaz and all the Davidic promises. Everything's going to be lost. So what does Ahaz do? He has a choice. It's binary. He can trust an alliance with one of the nations, Assyria was the big one, or he can trust in Yahweh. What does he do? He makes an alliance with Assyria. So he doesn't trust And so you see, that's the way the Israelites were back then. They were only giving to God in the temple in a rote way. Now, with that background, all of a sudden, Isaiah 1 makes sense. Isaiah 1, 10 through 12, listen to what God says. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? First of all, notice he calls them what? Rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. That's called a pejorative. (laughs) That's not good. They're as pagan as those of Sodom and Gomorrah, his covenant people. Now, notice in red, when he asked the question, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Again, the rhetorical question demands the answer, they're nothing. They're nothing. Why? Because they're given in a rote way, absent of faith. He doesn't care. In fact, isn't it interesting? At the end, he says, when you come to appear before me, who requires, you, requires of you this trampling of my courts? Wouldn't the answer say, well, it was you, God? Because he's the one who commanded them to do it. And that's the thought that we should have. So if he commanded them to do this, and they're doing it, why is he finding fault? Because they did it in a rote way. They did it habitually, with no thought. All the while, they're trusting in Moloch. They're trusting in other gods. They're making alliances with Assyria. And, oh, yeah, we'll put a goat in the offering plate for God, and we're good. But we, our, our heart is far from him. We don't trust him. But he's going to have to just honor it because we did it. Today in evangelicalism, you see a lot of evangelicals do things that the Lord has never commanded. And he's supposed to just honor it. Why? Because they did it. Think about Nadab and Abihu who offered profane fire, fire that the Lord never commanded. Did he ever command that? No. But he's just to receive it. That's the idea. It's just you take our sacrifices even though we don't trust in you and we actually have other gods that we prefer. 
that's the rebuke, and that's the way that we can give that's dishonoring to God. Yes, Rich? Could that be considered positional salvation? If I'm in Christ Jesus and I'm, and I'm giving money to the church, then it's a good thing. But if I'm not, if I'm not positionally in Christ Jesus, my faith is not in Christ Jesus, and I'm giving, that would be considered the bad road thing? Is that positional? I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's exactly right. Um, those who have faith, they're pleasing to God, and those who don't aren't. And so you can have people who give lots of money to various organizations and churches, but outside of saving faith in Christ, it is not pleasing. I think about Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so the, the big issue there is not that any particular deed you and I as humans may not see as, hey, that was a nice thing to do. But the point is that unless, because we're all such sinners, unless their sins have been removed by the work of Christ... They're always a stench in the nostrils of God. Amen. I like that. Yeah, so there's nothing that they can do that's pleasing. They could give all the money they had, but without faith, it's impossible to please God, as the, the writer of Hebrews says. So, yeah, good point, Rich. I like that. Very good. Um, now, one thing I want to point out here is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. What I want to do is I'm going to show you that giving, even in the Old Covenant, was something that was to always be done by faith. So think about the Israelite who went to temple. How were they justified? I think that kind of confuses Christians. Wait a minute. See, here's, I think, the typical view that we as evangelicals have had. The Jews in the Old Covenant, they were saved by works, but now we're under the New Covenant, we're saved by faith. Well, I don't think that that's a good reading of the Old Testament. I think the Jew who was saved was certainly one who went to temple, just like you and I go to church. But it was the Jew who offered his sacrifice in faith was the one who was justified. And I'll show you that this is very right from the beginning. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11.4. I want to turn to Hebrews because here in Hebrews 11.4, we have divine commentary on the giving of Abel. So if you ever wonder why was Abel, why was his gift received or his sacrifice by the Lord, but Cain's was not? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews 11.4, notice it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So the point is, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. Why? Because it was given in faith. Cain's was not. Now that goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. So we know right from Genesis, how did you please God? It wasn't the gift per se. It was whether it was given in faith. All right? Now, think about it. I won't have you turn to these, but think of Genesis 15, 6. The beginning of Abraham's call by God. It actually begins in Genesis 12. But the Abrahamic covenant is cut in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, 6, after God brought him outside and he said, as you look at the stars, so shall your seed be. Remember, God or excuse me, Abraham believed God, it says in Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how was Abraham justified? Was it by giving something? No, it was by faith. Fast forward to Habakkuk 2, 4. Habakkuk is that prophet who is looking forward to a day where God is going to restore Israel. But things are so bad because the people of Israel are in such bad shape. They're worshiping other gods. They're making alliances with pagan nations. And so he says, well, we're terrible. What's your answer to this? Remember what God's answer was? 
Don't worry, I'm sending the Babylonians. <laughs> well, the Babylonians are even worse, as it were, than the, the Israelites. So in Hebrews 2, 4, or excuse me, Habakkuk 2.4, you see the promises that the just shall live by faith. That Habakkuk and all the prophets would have to wait until the Messianic age to bring about the promises. So all the way through the Old Testament, how was an Israelite justified? By faith. It was by faith alone. And that's the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4. So do you see then the Israelite who was going to be justified and right with God, it was by faith, and so he was to give in faith. The same, I would say, is true for the Christian in the church. The only way that you and I give anything that's pleasing to God is by faith. Now, let's talk about dishonoring God in another way, and that is giving what is deficient or substandard. That is, we take the leftovers and God gets that, but we keep all the choice things for ourselves. And so in a sense, it's no sacrifice at all. We give him the junk, but we keep the good stuff for ourselves. All right? That's a way that we can also dishonor God. Now, let me show you how the Israelites did that. Turn your Bibles to Malachi 1, verse 6. Malachi 1, 6. The priests in Israel were guilty of this, but as the priests go, so the people go. Do you remember after the exile and the Israelites are in Babylonian captivity and they finally get to go home after their 70 years of captivity, they build the new temple, and when they go back to their homeland, the priests were to be their instructors. We see that in Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah chapter 10. We also see it in Ezra chapter 6. So who are to be the instructors of the people? The priests. So if your priests are bad, and that's, by the way, God calls them the bad shepherds in other texts. Well, if you have bad shepherds, what's going to happen to the flock? Well, they're going to go the same direction. So notice here in Malachi 1.6, it says, A son honors his father. This is the Lord's rebuke of them, these priests. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? But if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, what's interesting, again, is this charge is to the priests. And again, what was the priest's role after the exile? To teach the people of God. Again, you'll see that in Ezra chapter 6, starting like in verse 16, if I remember. You'll see the priest's role was to teach the people. So if the priests are giving substandard offerings and they're modeling that for the rest of the people, the image I think that we should have in our minds is the rest of the people are going to follow suit. So notice here on the screen, Malachi 1, 7 through 8. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. And he goes, but, but you say, how have we defiled you? So that's their question. In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Notice verse 8, he says, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Now, stop there for a moment. When he asks the question, is it not evil, what's the implied answer? Well, of course it is. They're giving substandard sacrifices. They're giving the junk to God so that they can keep the rest. Now, notice he goes on and read, he says, Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? 
So think about it. He's playing on the culture of the day where oftentimes dignitaries were given sacrifices as well. And he's asking the question God is through his prophet Malachi, try offering that one to the governor. Take your worst sacrifice, the blind one, the one that's all beat up and scrawny, and give that to the governor. What do you think the governor would say? So if the governor is to be treated weighty, how much more Yahweh, the creator of the universe? And yet what they wouldn't do to the governor, they did to him. That's what little faith that they had. So again, one of the ways that you and I can dishonor God is not just giving in in disobedience or lack of faith, but giving the junk while we keep the best. And I think that's a principle that we see also in the new covenant. In fact, I've got three things I want you to consider where you and I, no matter what covenant we're under, we can say this is how we should give to God. Number one, we should say God owns it all and that everything that we have is on loan from him. So everything that I have and everything that I am is on loan from God. How many here do you remember Rush Limbaugh before he passed away? Remember for years he would say, um, how would he say it? He would talk about a gift on loan from God, right? And I laughed about that because that's actually a biblical word. Everything we have is on loan from God, right? That's a good view. Number two, God deserves the first and best in our devotion, talents, and giving. So God deserves the best in our talents, our devotion, and everything that we have. So, for example, if I study hard to be a pilot, how much more should I study his word? I I study, what's so funny is you'll have people who will study really hard and they're very good at what they do. A doctor, for example. I don't mean to pick on a doctor, but just any example you can think of. Let's say, let's just take a pilot. Take a pilot who's very dedicated to their studies to be a good pilot, but then they have the verse of the day taken out of context, wrenched of its significance. Well, that's sufficient for God. Well, wait a minute. The creator of the universe has spoken, and you'd rather know, and by the way, it's important to know your, your flying materials. I'm not denying that. But yet you don't want to know the Lord? What about our, our time that we give to knowing the Lord? Does he get the leftovers or does he get the best? The third thing is we give to honor God or to make him a name, not to make ourselves a name. If our lives are dedicated to making ourselves a name and not him a name, we're not giving in the right way. That's the idea. So you see that in both the Old and the New Covenant. Now what I want to do is I want to turn to something that I had, I'm going to highlight in blue here. And we're going to talk about, are we under the new covenant compelled to give in the same way that they did? I'm sorry, we're under the new covenant. Are we compelled to give in the same way that those in the old covenant are? Notice again, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. He says, honor the Lord from your wealth. So we talked about honoring, what that means. And from the first of all your produce. Now notice the purpose. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now under the Mosaic covenant, the Israelites had national promises so that if they did what God had required, God would bless the whole nation. Now, one of the places we see this is in the book of Deuteronomy where God promises that if they give, he would bless their giving and he would give them crops. He would protect them from enemies. He would give them even children was considered 
part of the covenant blessings. So remember in Deuteronomy, before the Israelites go into the promised land, God gives them curses and blessings. And remember, there was an antiphonal song where you have one side sing one thing and the other side sing the other. That's found in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So Deuteronomy 27, you have the cursings at Mount Ebal, but then in Deuteronomy 28, you have the blessings at Gerizim. And there's a valley between the two. And I think it was designed intentional. They could have heard one another. So there's this antiphonal singing going back and forth of the curses and the blessings. So notice what it says here. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn to it because you'll see it in context. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 4 through 5. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. By the way, let me stop. This is if they give as God has commanded. So listen to the promise given to Israel. Blessed shall be your offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. Stop. So if they give, he's going to bless them agriculturally. He's going to bless their bodies with children. And he's going to protect them from their enemies. In fact, we see the same thing just a few verses later. Deuteronomy 28.8, it says, The Lord will command the blessing upon you and your barns. That's where Solomon is getting this, right? It's right from the, the law. And in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, here's the question. Can we as Christians look at Proverbs 3.10 and say, well, you know what? Me and my family were giving, and therefore God is going to bless America with crops. Or we as an American people have been giving, is God going to bless America with crops? I don't think that that necessarily follows. Let me explain why. There is one nation that had a covenant with God, and that was Israel. So under the Mosaic Covenant, yes, you had individuals that were partakers of it, but you really had a theocracy. There was one nation, that is Israel, that really does belong to God, and he made specific promises to them that you and I today as Americans cannot claim. Now, we can claim blessings as Christians that we have forgiveness of sins and we have a kingdom that's coming. And we have that in common even with those who believed in Israel. But we cannot make the claim that because we have faith as Christians and we have been honoring God in all that we do, that God is going to give us a bountiful crop. That would be a misreading of this text. And so that's why we have to be careful in Proverbs when we're reading that, we have to say, hey, wait, what covenant am I under? I'm under the Mosaic Covenant, living in Israel, or I'm under the New Covenant as a Christian in a pagan land? Yes, Eric. Yeah, also, I, have, uh, I think that's a valid thing. Absolutely, we've yeah. got to distinguish between the New Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. And then here's actually my question. Um, under the Mosaic Covenant... You know, they had, God had given them, were those blessings, first of all, were they national blessings? And, and then secondly, did it depend upon following the, the whole counsel of God? And the reason that I ask that is that I'm a CPA. I've done hundreds of different clients. I've seen lots of different lives. And I've seen people that are nominally Christians, and some of them, to my limited mortal understanding. I believe that they were Christians, believers, genuine. 
but they would give all kind, you know, just give and and everything. Mm -hmm. But yet, at the same time, not pay their credit card bills and and not follow the whole counsel of God. Mm -hmm. And so, there's several things at play here as we look at these promises. First of all, as you say, these are promises under the old covenant to the Jewish people. I know we'll be getting into the new covenant here yeah. pretty soon, but the, this idea of the whole counsel of God, I think we've got to think about that also. Yeah, amen. Well said. Yeah. So let's just break that down into the old and versus the new, the new covenant first, and then we'll talk about the whole counsel of God. I think when we're looking at the promises given to Israel, that if they were faithful to the covenant, God would bless them. We have to say, well, that's for that nation for that time. So how do they do? Well, we know in history that they don't do very well. One of the things that Israel was to do was every seven years allow their farmland to remain fallow. They were not to harvest, and they were not to plant prior. So what happens is they don't do that. Now, why don't they do that? Because they don't believe. So if you don't believe, you don't obey. So it always goes back to faith. So what does God do in their 70 years of captivity? Well, he takes the years, in other words, every seven years they have the Sabbath rest for the land. That's what they're supposed to do. Well, they don't do it. So God says, well, I'm going to make the land rest, and I'm going to make it rest every seven years ten times. So 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And you read about that, and it was at Jeremiah 25.3, if I remember correctly. So God forces them to have the Sabbath rest. And that Sabbath rest of the land was evidence that they didn't believe. Because they didn't believe, they didn't obey. So when they did believe and obey, he did bless them, and he did protect them. But when they didn't, he would kick them out. Here's something I want you to think about with with your question, Eric. Think about Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan Kahn is a man who claims to be a prophet today, and he claims that America is to be governed by the same Shemitah, the law of Sabbath rest, that Israel was. Now, he'll him and haw and he'll hedge on that, but he talks about how that God, if you don't bless him and you don't obey him, he'll make the land have its Sabbath rest. And he uses the argument of the Shemitah, the Sabbath rest, with America. But let's ask ourselves the question, where under the new covenant is the United States Christian to allow their farmland to remain fallow every seven years? Well, it's not. It's a command that's not given to us. Let me give you another one that may be more something you've heard more often. How many have heard of Second Chronicles 7.14? You often hear politicians cite this, that if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Is that a promise that was given to the United States or was it given to Israel? Now, I think we can confess our sins and we can go before God as Christians and we can really have forgiveness. We can come to faith uh, before we're Christians, come to faith, become Christians, and have the forgiveness of sins. That's true. But we don't have the promise that our land will be healed. What would that look like? If we have a covenant relationship with God, do we have to have the Shemitah laws, letting our farmland rest fallow every seven years? Do we have to have, remember those cities of refuge that God commanded of Israel? Should we have those? Do we go back to the tithe that we have, or the free feast of first fruits? Are we going to just take upon ourselves the whole Mosaic covenant? And even if we did, doesn't the writer of Hebrews say that that covenant is obsolete? He does in Hebrews 8.13. So do you see there's no way of going back to that? 
So when Christians are citing that, saying, yes, if we will repent and believe God is going to heal our land, I think it's mis- a misgiven... It's, it's not understanding the text. It's not understanding what covenant we are, in fact, under. That's the idea. So what I want to do is I want to explore... I want to show you a slide where we're going to contrast and compare giving under the old covenant versus giving under the new covenant. Let's look at these. Oh, I have that actually in the next slide. Let me give you the key text here in the new covenant first on giving. So if you want to say, hey, what's one passage that really talks about what giving under the new covenant looks like? It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. Now, before I read this, remember Paul was taking up that collection for the Jerusalem saints. He had taken some, or was, from the Macedonians. Now he's asking the Corinthians to give what they had committed to. They had already given a previous commitment. So listen to what he says about giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 7. Paul says, So I thought it was necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. Let me handle this verse 5. Notice in red, he wanted them to give this gift and that it would not be affected by covetousness. A better reading of that covetousness is probably found in the ESV where he says not affected or given as an exaction. Okay, in fact, there's another scholar named Moffat. He has his own Bible version he says that it's not, he says that it's to give a gift not as money wrung out from you. In other words, the issue is not that they're affected by covetousness, it's that they feel that they're being extorted by God. And so, why would they feel extorted by God? Well, they don't really want to give what they committed to. So, he's saying, hey, when you committed to that, I don't want as an apostle to have the appearance that I'm coming to wring it out of you as if you're giving only under extortion or compulsion and you're not giving freely from the heart. He wants them to genuinely, from the heart, want to give this money. That's the idea. He wants that attitude. Now, why? Well, notice he says in verse 6, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, notice in verse 7, here's the big difference between the new and the old covenant. He says, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now stop there. What that means is you'll hear some New Covenant Christians say, well, I still tithe. Well, that's fine to tithe if you want to give 10%, but realize it's not to be done under compulsion, and it's also not something that's commanded that you must Because you're to give as you've purposed in your heart. Now, what is the difference between your heart and the average Israelite under the Old Covenant? As a believer, you have the Spirit. And the Spirit is the grace that God has deposited in you, where, in fact, because you've been given so much, in your heart overflowing with gratitude, you give back to God, giving back what He first gave to you. So the implication is under the new covenant, there's not a set tithe, the Massar, the 10%. You don't have the first fruits that you have to abide by, but you freely can give. 
not under compulsion. Yes. So then in, when it goes into verse 6 where he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, that sounds like old covenant to me. It, it's if very much in this, keeping with the, it, yes. You get the material reward. So Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, now, here's how I think we should think about it. All of us who have faith in Christ are going to be justified, but there is reward. There is reward in heaven. And there will be reward at the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, where he doesn't judge whether we as believers go to heaven or hell, but he does reward his flock. And I think the implication is that those who will sow sparingly are those who also are going to be rewarded sparingly. Now, that doesn't mean we're not rewarded with eternal life. That's not the issue. But there still is an issue of reward even for the new covenant believer. Absolutely. So is that in, in light of not dollars and cents, but with our time, with our prayers, with our, with our devotion to God? Okay. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And in this context, it would be their, their donation monetarily to the Jerusalem church, but it would apply to other things. Absolutely. That's well said. Very good. Now, let me show you a, a summary slide, which I think illustrates the contrast here. Think about under the old covenant... Giving 10% is mandatory. That's the tithe, the Massar. You find that in Leviticus 27.30. Now, let's ask ourselves under the New Covenant, we just found in 2 Corinthians 9.7 that we're not to give under compulsion, but by a grateful heart. Now, what I'm saying is if someone is determined in their heart they want to give 10%, well, that's fine. But I just want you to realize that the obligation isn't 10% as it was under the Old Covenant. Some Christians I know, I have people that I know, I'll just leave it at that, that are, go to other places and they say, you know what, 10%, they think of that as just like that's the bare minimum. That's how they think of it. But they're not understanding that under the new covenant, those who are given the Spirit, you freely choose what you give. You see, when I was a brand new Christian, I would go, I was at an airport, and at an airport as a flight instructor, you had a lot of people who were wealthy, and a lot of them got involved with a church that was a name it and claim it prosperity, a word of faith church. And so my first messages that I would hear where I thought people were Bible-believing Christians, they were all on giving. It was message after message after message after message after message about giving. So all of a sudden I think, well, man, the Bible's just got to be just filled with giving. That's all it is. It's got to be about that. Well, then later as I start teaching at, I go to seminary later after I'm an airline pilot and all this, well, you start teaching verse by verse. Do you notice how many messages Bob and I do that's dedicated on giving? Now, why, why is that? Well, because when you have people that are filled by the Spirit, they graciously want to give. You don't have to extort it out of them because the love of Christ overflows in their heart. You don't have to beat them over the head with it. They just give. And that's what's so beautiful under the new covenant. That's what's being assumed is that people by the Spirit will give graciously. So in a sense, it's a different standard. It's a standard, but it's between you and God. And it's a standard that you and God wrestle with and no one else. Number two, under the old covenant, giving first fruits is mandatory. You give the first fruits of everything that you have, whether it's the animal. Now, you could redeem certain animals, but then you had to add a tax to that. 
It could be agriculture. It could be money. You give 10%. Now, under the new covenant, do we have that? No. Ironically, Christ and his people are the first fruits. The first fruits offered to God. So again, we are to what? We're left with the idea that we give as God has put in our heart. We're those who are the first fruits to God of all creation, as James says in James 1.18. Third contrast, God blesses the giving. Now, as I say all this, I want you to realize that under the old covenant, the people assumed that they had been graciously given by God first. That's still inherent to the text. But what I am saying to you is, remember, God gave specific promises under the Mosaic covenant. You fulfill the terms of the covenant. I'm going to protect you from enemies. I'm going to give you a bumper crop. I'm going to give you children from your wombs. And he had certain promises that he gave to them as a nation. So if they would give, God would bless it. Under the new covenant, God blessed, therefore we forgive. Yeah, Scott. Um, I just wanted to point out that... uh, the contrast between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Abrahamic Covenant, of course, was unilateral. Yeah, absolutely. And the Mosaic Covenant, as you're describing, is bilateral. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there'll be some pushback on the... the, the, Certainly, I believe you're right. I think the Abrahamic Covenant is is unilateral. It's a unilateral covenant signed by God. He alone walks the blood path. Now, there are elements where... Certainly, Abraham is to engage in circumcision. It's commanded under even that covenant. But yes, the, it's a unilateral covenant in that God is the one who is going to make the promises come about. He alone is the one who walked the blood path. Under the Mosaic covenant, you have stipulations from both God and for the people. And so, in that sense, it really is a bilateral covenant. Absolutely. Now, under that, there's still this rubric of it's all by grace. God graciously entered into a covenant with them. He graciously redeemed them from, from Egyptian captivity. He graciously will bring them to the promised land. He will graciously cause the sun to rise and the sun to set upon them. He's going to graciously give them all things. So that's always implied. So but what's it? Yep. The issue is with them is uniquely they're a nation to God. And so their farmland belongs to God. And so if they will do what God has commanded them, he's promised, as we saw in Proverbs today, to make their barns overflow. If you and I, as believers in Christ today, we honor God, it's not a promise that God is going to make all of the farmland prosper in America. Yes, Bob. Is it possible for man to make a unilateral covenant and obligate God to keep his part when God didn't make it? No. Well, <laughs> we did a radio show on that, and right. a lot of people said thank you because they were waiting for somebody to say that. Yeah. We can't say, we're making a covenant, God has to keep it. Amen. And that's what really is egregious. Right. And we really don't have a Jeremiah today either, do we? No, we do not. We do not have a modern-day prophet or apostle and so there's on the a, scene of history. A type of literature called a Jer- Jeremiad. I can't even say a Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiad. That's um, very particularly American. Yeah. So the, sum- the assumption is that we made a unilateral covenant with God. He agreed to it because he didn't kill the people who made it. Right. 
right? And they therefore, whatever's it. wrong in America has got to be our sin, and we have to repent. But we don't know from century to century which exact sin it is that we need to repent of. One group says it's the social sin, social gospel. Another says it's the moral gospel. But the fact is that God saves individuals. Amen. So uh, we need to remember that if any of us are ever saved and touched by God and have a hunger for the word of God, it's his grace. It's not that we obligated God to anything. Amen. Well said, Bob. Thank you. Yeah, Peter. Um, So for an application, uh, given that um, all all our resources are, are given from God, that's a given. Yeah. So for our church, um, I think I think in this physical world, one of the challenges that we all face is learning to live in dependence like a sparrow and learning to live like Joseph, saving for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. And we're caught between these two realms mm-hmm. constantly. Can you give us any advice as to... I mean, all we really have is today, but how do we balance that other than by through prayer and the means of grace uh, yeah. and a circumcised heart? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. You know, I think that that's the issue with every believer having the Spirit and having, therefore, wisdom from God, that we can determine in our own hearts what we give and not be compelled that it's a percentage that we owe... In, by the way, I think that that percentage, the tithe, the 10%, let, led to, not, not that it's God's fault, but because the Israelites didn't believe, it led to that rote giving, as we saw in Isaiah 29. And that's the issue. Is the issue is, are we giving in order to placate God? Or do we realize that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have the forgiveness of sins? And because he's freely given us all things out of gratitude, we give back what he first gave to us. And so I think what we all have to do is cultivate that biblical worldview where God owns it all, that you and I live again, we move and we have our being in him, and that he gets the first and the best of all that we have. And we, just, we in our own selves can determine what that looks like. And so because we have the spirit, we can say, hey, I've got to set this money aside, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. That's all freedom. We're not morally bound to give a certain amount. You want to give more than 10%, give more than 10%. You want to give 10%, give 10%. You want to give under 10%, you give under 10%. It's up to you and God because God has deposited the Spirit within you. That's a beautiful thing under the new covenant. So in some sense, being, giving, being a pastor giving a message on new covenant giving is much easier than giving one on old covenant giving. It's between you and God. That's the issue. And, and what happens is people are filled by the Spirit who God graciously has worked in. They give graciously. They always have, and they always do. That's the people of God. So great question. Thank you. Well, let's, with that end, and then we'll, next time we'll come to the idea of receiving the discipline from the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, and that under the new covenant you've given us the Spirit so that we may give back what you first gave to us, that we may do that which is pleasing in your sight, first and foremost, that we would have faith in your Son. I pray for Bob today as he teaches through 1 Corinthians 3, that we would understand the text, that we'd understand the irony that's involved, and that we would apply it to our lives so that we may not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray, Lord, that you would help uh, us during the meeting today as well, and also in our time together, in our 
our meal. We pray for blessings, and we thank you, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.